Hello folks, this is the Knickknack Podcast. If you are still subscribed, congratulations! Thank you for sticking with me through the last episode. I know it was a tough one. This episode, I, Knickknack, a queer and trans autist with a variety of deep interests, got another opportunity to talk with Anthony Rotuno of the Glass Onion podcast, Life and Life Only podcast. He does many other great work, and we had a wonderful conversation in Living with the Is Easy with Eyes Closed a couple months back, I guess early August. So if you haven't had the chance to listen to that one, listen to that one after this one. But we go into quite a lot, starting kind of with John Lennon's thinking towards the latter part of his life. I don't want to face it, nobody told me that sort of thing. In fact, I am calling this episode, for those keeping score, season 15, episode 33, Nobody Told Us, so I'm going to throw in bits and pieces of my music demos in here, and Anthony's as well. In fact, he's graciously given me permission to use his song, the Fool's Guide as a bridge to the outro. So grab your favorite beverage, grab a breath, open your mind, take a moment and just let it all sink in and please stick with me as I navigate the very complicated modern world and try and come up with good content in the ever-evolving podcast space. again with Anthony. Anthony, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you coming back again. I'm not sure why you did, but I'm greatly appreciative of it. (laughs) You're welcome. I woke up half an hour ago, quick shower on the computer. Here we are. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Just just rip the bandaid off, right off. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's good to be back. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, not a problem. I really appreciate your all your content and and everything that you do for the the larger community obviously after the la- last conversation you gave me a ton to think about i i still haven't thought about it all but <laughs> i i i i found enough to to really i uh, hopefully take advantage of the opportunity to talk again and what I what I found myself dwelling on after the fact was kind of this this notion of of how much the world has changed since we mm. lost John and mm. how much more difficult it can be to be what I'll loosely term a creative person these days and Mm. i'm really wondering what your experience of being again i'm using 
the term loosely creative has been and how you've kind of adapted an approach to the changes in the world recently. Um, in terms of content creation, you mean? Yeah, and in terms of yeah. content creation and, and in terms of just like, I, I mean, I, I get the sense from your music and from your your content that, that you're not a person that generally thinks inside the box a ton. If I'm wrong about that, let me know. But right. I mean, just just being in that space of of, of being a person that you know, you know, just can't can't or doesn't kind of follow the beaten path. How how have you navigated that and dealt with that throughout recent history? Well, I mean, the actual creativity itself is is probably helped by all of this stuff because there's so much to to think about, to write about. Um, I think in terms, so that, that actually being creative is not difficult. And for me, uh, well, you know, yeah. in, term, in terms of like, you know, there's more material perhaps than there used to be. But um, in terms, obviously in terms of um, trying to uh, gain financially, which I know everybody says isn't the point, which I understand, <laughs> but when you've, when you've created uh, X amount of stuff you know, I was just talking to you just before we started recording. I, I just woke up and there's a guy on social media who likes to be quote unquote honest, which is kind of fine up to a point, but then he makes these comments that just sound kind of vaguely insulting. And I don't think you'd be insulted unless you knew how much work you put in to create this thing that you're putting out free to the world, for example, podcasts. Right. Um, I think there's so much material to be creative about at the moment in the world. I mean, it's 20 years since 9-11, of course, which is a, an interesting sort of midpoint because John Lennon's death was 40 years ago. Right. Um, but I think uh, just since we're both podcasters to talk about that, we're in, we're in this era where you really have to start hawking your product, don't you, to make any money at all. <laughs> it's... Uh, strange world nobody told us there'd be days like these <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if you want to talk about just the state of the world i mean it's uh, it's interesting on one level i think it's still possible to bury your head in the sand and to kind of read the news and kind of have a vague idea that someone's still in control but i think if you really look at it it's a very weird time i mean um that's the legacy of 9-11, really. I think now everybody knows, everybody with, you know, has the willingness to find out, knows that regardless of what you think actually happened on 9-11, I'm not, rather not get into that, the aftermath is that basically the, the American government was given carte blanche to do basically anything they wanted because everyone was in a state of trauma. Uh, and so what we're seeing really is, is the effect of that in this kind of creeping... I would say Orwellian state or surveillance state, you know, that a lot of people I speak to just, they just have, seem to have no idea it's happening. Right? I don't know. I think it's because humans are so adaptable. That's the way we've survived. Yeah. I think, I think it's a little bit of normalization too. I mean, yeah. think about just in the last year and a half, you, you might see, or at least I would see occasionally, usually somebody from, the eastern part of the world, if they were sick, they would wear a mask. But that was the only person that would, you know, that's the only place you would see that. 
And now, of course, for many, it's normal. And it's just a matter of you, you have this established norm. And I think there are opportunistic people out there that might see an event take place and say, oh, here's a chance to change the norm just a little bit. Just, you mm. know, dial up the temperature just a little bit. And yeah. I think when you do it subtly, you you put in <laughs> put in the notes here, boiling frog style. I think that's very much it. Like, you, mm -hmm. don't, you don't notice you're boiling until you're like, holy crud, I'm boiling. Yeah. And you wake up one day and it's just like, what? How? And, uh, yeah, you're very, very much right about specifically about podcasting. It's, uh, it's funny having done this, I think podcasting started with Adam Curry around 2004. I'd have to double check that to be absolutely sure, but, you know, I started in 06, so I, I got in pretty close to the beginning and it was yeah. at the start, it was just this hobbyist thing, you know, you record something, you put it on the internet, you see what happens. Mm. And now it's, it's, it's very much, you're right. It's very much a thing of, oh, suddenly it's not enough for it to be a hobbyist thing. Suddenly it must be a professional thing. And suddenly you must worry about every single thing you say. And I, I think really if, if any, any of us sat down and recorded ourselves or put ourselves under high scrutiny, mm. a la Beatles fame, for any amount of time, we're gonna say stupid stuff. Mm. <laughs> that, that's the nature of humanity. Yeah. I think people are free to still make podcasts if you don't expect to make anything at all from it. But I think after a certain time, you just sort of think, well, I deserve to make some pocket money at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. People, you know, it's, people are still free to just make podcasts if they want, you know, of course. But uh, just to tell you another story, actually, um, just very briefly. And it, it's to do with, um, it's to do with this weird, there's been a kind of a confluence of uh, capitalism, which has always been there. But you could argue is sort of raging and becoming more rampant as time goes on. And then this weird... Um, free culture we live in where you're sort of obliged to give content out for free up to a certain point and then sort of apologetically <laughs> try to make uh, some change from it. Um, I was contacted probably on the strength of life and life only by um, a new app. Um, oh, fuck it. I'll just give the name wisdom. Huh. Um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, there must be a million apps in the world. I'm sure nobody from there is going to be listening, but uh, you know, never know. Uh, uh, anyway, they started this app and they said, oh, you know, we, we've, we'd we like you to be a top mentor. And I was like, oh, yes, you know, oh, top mentor, look at me. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, so I went to the website and it's, uh, and basically anyone could be a top mentor. You, you, you just apply to be a top mentor. So it's not like, it's not some holy grail of, of content creators. Anyway, so uh, um, they kept sending us emails saying, oh, the app is ready to launch. You're going to make money. They specifically said, you're going to make money from this. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. So the idea is that you dispense some wisdom to people and somehow make money from it. I'm like, okay, fine. So they put a YouTube video out and lo and behold, you find that in fact it's gift vouchers, not money. Ah. 
Yeah, and um, the gift vouchers scroll under the screen, but the one that kind of leaps out is uh, Starbucks, you know, <laughs> just for example. So you're kind of giving away uh, your some kind of mentorship, some kind of wisdom, some kind of advice. Maybe they saw her as a life coach, I have no idea. But um, And uh, you're going to get basically Starbucks or whatever gift vouchers. And then they have the audacity to say, oh, something about, oh, oh we would encourage you to donate your vouchers to charity or something. Are so, you serious? Yeah. So it's this weird, this weird thing where, I don't know, it seems like um, companies or capitalists, to use a, a sort of broad term, they can almost get away with anything. It's just, they, they're taking this thing where they're going to make money from it and you are obliged, you're kind of lied to that you're going to make money. In the end, you get gift vouchers and then you're encouraged to donate it to charity. Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. It's a giant pyramid scheme from the sound of it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's... The funny thing is, especially you were mentioning that, that feedback earlier, like, it's really, really, really not hard to, in my mind, create a podcast or to write some lyrics or, or whatever. You just sit down and you, you know, you do it and either it works or it doesn't. And, you know, you hope it works and you hope that the feedback doesn't get under your skin too much. But, mm. you know, if, if it were a community effort, if, if someone out there for whatever reason decided they liked my work and they wanted to hear feedback or advice or something and they mm -hmm. came to, it, to me and asked for it I would happily give it to them just because I'm a nice person probably mm -hmm. to the detriment of myself <laughs> mm -hmm. because uh, I, yeah I, I've been very much caught up in that free thing like the the idea that in order to, to have worth you must be producing something and even though, you know, all the work I do, you know, podcasts these days, 12 hours worth of work, maybe a song, a demo sort of level songs, probably seven to 10. But I don't, I have a very hard time slapping that up on the internet and saying, okay, that'll be $5, please. Or, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, setting up a Patreon or, or anything like that. I'm very much a... Well, this is this is output that's going to happen anyway. You might as well have it. I'd rather people hear mm -hmm. it than not hear it. But yeah. but but yeah, I mean, after doing it for so long, you, and and then burning yourself out too. I, I mean, mm -hmm. you work at a certain rate. All the podcasts you put out, all the music you put out, I I can't imagine that you have a whole lot of spare energy. I know I don't. <laughs> I mean, the music was quite a long time ago, to be honest. It's uh, I just occasionally do little bits, like I did that mix of Life Goes On, because I just felt like that, because I had the individual stems. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I understand. I think, you know, I've consumed uh, thousands of hours of podcasts for free, uh, so I'm, it's not really complaining. I understand that that's the way it is. Um, and songs, it's fun to just put stuff up online, I'll be honest. You know, for people to people to listen and to enjoy it. And sometimes it feels like you know you, you're looking for a pat on the back, and that may be true. You know, someone to say, "Oh, well done." You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, we, sure, we are perhaps looking for that to some extent, but it's also sharing 
sharing nice stuff. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And uh, I think it was just like, sometimes someone makes a comment and it, you know, everyone wants to be honest, which is fine. And I, I love honesty, but sometimes you've got to, you've, you've got to think, oh, you know, the person that doesn't create podcasts, maybe just doesn't know how much effort it takes. Yeah. It's a huge effort. And it's fun up to a point, but then uh, the editing, I, I, I don't ever find fun. Really. The only fun is if, if it's a conversation that I had ages ago and I get to listen to the conversation again. <laughs> but if I'm editing something that I recorded a couple of days ago, I don't consider that fun at all. I don't know. It's work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a ton of work. It's it's tiring and it's I, I I've been puzzled like why on earth did I I still don't remember why I suddenly decided to post my random thoughts on the internet. I I will probably never remember why, but yeah. It's just so interesting. It's like okay, I'm posting random thoughts on the internet. People are downloading it. Yeah. Okay. And then now it's, you know, 15 and a half years and 351 mainline episodes later. Jeez, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, how much of it, how much of it is for you, for you? How much of it is cathartic for you? And how much do you think is for other people? Is it some kind of mix? Would you say? I, I for me, it, it's when I record, if it's a, unscripted episode like the last one was mm. that's mostly for me to get it out there to just get the crap that's in my head out of my head mm. um when i go to edit though that's me filtering it and trying to make it somewhat <laughs> mm. consumable for the masses and you know in the last four or five months since april or may I, I used to just do raw recordings and then edit whatever I didn't like out in post, which of course would take mm. ages. These days, usually what I'll do is I'll have some concept, some idea, and I'll pound it out on the keyboard for four or five hours, and then I'll record it, and then I'll edit it for another six or seven hours. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm really curious. What's your, what's your process for editing? Or uh, for the for the whole like production thing, like how do, how do you go from episode idea to okay, it's posted now. I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> now yeah. I'm going to obsessively watch the numbers or whatever it is you you end up <laughs> doing in your personal experience. I have managed to stop doing that actually. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, let me think. So yeah, I have the idea. Obviously, most of them involve another person, so I contact them. Ten. Now, I think because I've had, people can look at the guests I've had, um, don't generally get too many people turning you down for the glass onion one, but a couple of people did. Mark Lewis, and, but I totally understand, you know, he's busy with tuning. Right, right. Uh, let me think. Yeah, so I record it. The ones where I don't put sound clips in, they take a lot less time. But yeah, I go through the conversation, edit it, do a first edit, and then listen back and make little tweaks. And then as I'm listening back, I write down ideas for the intro, for the links, and what to put in the show notes. So I kind of kill two birds with one stone. I do that all while I'm listening. And then just put the music on and put the sound clips. And the sound clips can, it's quite amazing. Like sometimes I put four or five sound clips that are about two or three minutes each. And I find two or three hours have gone by. It's absolutely incredible. 
it's, it's, there's a point there's a point in the creation of it where the hours you think oh, i'll be finished by like four o'clock and then you find it's like 6 30 or something yep that's <laughs> that that's how you end up with no sleep and wake and st- standing up and going oh my god i've been in front of the computer for 13 hours holy crap yeah again i yeah i, I do limit myself because because I, I, I think i was trying to put out a very furious rate to get established but now i've got all three shows established you know the, the other shows have had i don't know 10 15 20 episodes so i've kind of chilled on it a lot to be honest you should do yeah. the same <laughs> i really i really really should yeah. i was i was trying to rebrand sometime in april and my my plan in my head is like okay two fs ride-alongs a month two knickknack episodes a month and eventually i may spent split the feed again if i can figure out how to do that financially and you know four episodes a, a month is reasonable it's it's when i get an idea at three o'clock in the morning that i get myself in trouble <laughs> yeah i used to have that as well yeah because that middle of the night thing you get some good ideas yeah and it, it's it's mm. it's very much like a um for me it's like a, a stunt car in any creative endeavor that i that i might undertake it's like a trying to get a stunt car to jump through an open box car window one side of the train to the other, you have to time it just right, otherwise it ends horribly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, the the creative process is certainly interesting, especially especially these days in the you know the dynamics that we're facing and you know trying to trying to figure out how to adapt. I guess you you were mentioning to me off air that you. Mm. You'd um, kind of found some, like a nine to five sort of situation. Did, did you want to talk about the um, experience of trying to make that happen? Um, yeah, so I was kind of looking for part-time work to supplement the teaching and life coaching and stuff. So that'd be a nice balance. Yeah, I just uh, I haven't applied for a job in England because I've been abroad. I was abroad for years. And I quite shocked again it's this boiling the boiling frog thing which i was pulled up on because they said scientifically that wouldn't happen (laughs) (laughs) anyway um yeah it's that thing that you don't really notice i just noticed there's a really bureaucracy that that has probably been creeping in year by year and it's just it's just getting really ridiculous to the fact that you send a cv in god i sound like i'm complaining today (laughs) you send a cv in and then you have to write the entire history of your working life which is like nearly it's 25 years for me and then you i I find that i've run up against some real gatekeepers yeah you you can't get to you can't get directly to speak to people because you've got a gatekeeper in a way and i suppose one of the things uh another sort of theme of the podcast that i listen to is the idea of um people dependent on their jobs kind of buying into the propaganda almost, you know, so you have a person that would probably agree with you that there's too much bureaucracy and, you know, sort of jumping through hoops to get stuff done, which, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to spend hours on the phone to get a form and hard to speak to a human being, that kind of thing. They would probably set, agree with you, but because their job is dependent on it, they just get, um, I don't know, conditioned or it just becomes natural that they're the person on the phone who won't let you talk to 
the next person to get something done directly. You have to, everything has to be very indirect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really experienced this sort of thing. I, I graduated in college in December of 2007, which had to be the worst possible time ever. <laughs> <laughs> because of course the U S stock market took a crap the next year and it yeah. lead, lead up to that and all that. But, I, I remember uh, no harm in, in telling s some of it now. Is I was I was trying to get in with with Microsoft to work on TrainSim two at the time, and right. part of it is my limited social skills, but also that even at the time, it's like you can't just call person X and say, "Hey, I'd like I'm interested in a job. Here's what I have." You yeah. have to go to I think I went to E3 and a number of other conferences just to try and get face-to-face -face time with people yeah. to get, you know, to get through the bureaucracy. And the most recent job I applied for, uh, that experience was probably worse because I had the rare experience of actually getting through to the interview and ultimately getting that particular job. Mm. But the interview felt like nothing short of entrapment. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the entire experience is just like, okay, I could answer that question honestly, but if I do, I'm mm. screwed. Mm. Uh, um, in this particular case, uh, the the they they tripped me up with uh, you know I was going in for this one position and they offered me a a position that would or they mentioned a position that would clearly be lower as as, as an option would you be open to position X? Well, mm. of course you know the right thing to say is oh I'd be open to anything. Yeah. But I'm sitting there in my head going okay you have my my resume right in front of you. You see me, you know my experience is better than this. How do I spend this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, it's it's just like, uh, to me, the corporate world is always just this kind of this funnel. And, mm. you, you know, you kind of have to deliberately say, okay, I'm going into the funnel now. I'm going through your very narrow <laughs> parameters. Yeah. And, and, you know, it becomes... Um, it's reminiscent of, I, I don't know if you've seen the musical or the movie Rent, but it's reminiscent of uh, yeah. what you own towards the end of the film. You know, dive into work, drive the other way. That trip of hurt, that trip of shame goes away. Just play the game sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think quite honestly, if you're again, going to loosely use the term divergent enough, that drip of hurt, that drip of shame does not go away. <laughs> right, right. It just slowly eats at you like like acid in a stomach or something, which is... Yeah, there's a Radiohead lyric, isn't there? A job that slowly kills you, wounds that won't heal, or something like that. Bruises yeah. that won't heal. I thought of my dad when I heard that, actually, because my, my dad managed to retire, actually, just before he was 60. Um, oh, wow. But he had a job. And I could see he was so stressed out by it. When the first time I heard that lyric, whenever the first time I heard, uh, I guess it was OK Computer, wasn't it? Yeah. I just thought of my dad instantly. Yeah. yeah. 
I I think of um, I think of the animals. We got to get out of this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very very much that sort of mentality of it's just it's and it's and it's frustrating too because it's like if you're in the sort of space more you than I because you're in my humble estimation you're much more skilled than I am but if you're in a space where you where you have creative content that that has gained momentum hmm. it's very easy to want to sit there and go well shouldn't I be getting like like you were saying earlier shouldn't I be getting something for this <laughs> yeah yeah and, and I think that's the frustration because you, you you run into this thing of, in the U.S. especially, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you, I, I started in streaming media, kind of, and this whole idea of, oh, you want to play another artist song, artist's song on internet streaming radio or a podcast? Okay, that'll be, I don't know what the rate is these days, but... No, oh, God, yeah. At, at the time, it was... 50 cents a song, something like that. I'm sure it's right. gone up. Right. Um, and you know, as as a creator, whether you're doing internet radio or a podcast or what have you, mm. maybe two cents of that is going directly to the artist. Maybe. Mm. And it's, it's, just, it's, it's just one of those things where in a creative space, I would like to be able to say, you know, most of my, my music anyway is nowhere near good enough. But if it were, I'd like to... I'd like to be able to say, okay, if Podcaster X or Broadcaster X approaches me, wants to use my song, I, I'll say to them, that's great. Feel free to use it as long as you put a link to, to where people can buy my stuff. But it was deliberately designed to make it very, very difficult for the internet broadcasting space, podcasting, streaming, radio, whatever, mm. to... To, to compete with terrestrial stations and broadcasts, at least here in the U.S. So mm. that, that's always been a frustration for me because I, I, of course, want to. The, 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 the few artists I do, I do feature in the, the bumper music and such, I, I want to make sure that even if I can't pay them royalties directly, I can say, okay, here at the end of the show, show here are all the links, here is all the credit, please buy their music. Mm. Um, but it, but it's a very frustrating position to be in because it put it, you know, it puts you in a space where your work isn't entirely original and no work is, mm. and you're also relying on other people to make to to help you shape part of your art. It's it's an interesting space to be in. But have you have you had any crossover or similar experience in that arena with music? With music. Uh, with with music, either or there people trying to use yours or or you using not, others, that sort of thing. Not really. Yeah, I mean, I've, obviously, there's the issue of using music clips in podcasts and stuff. And of course, nowadays, a lot of it is done with algorithms rather than human beings. So you take out the uh, discretionary aspect of it. No, I mean, my music, as I said, I just created it basically for myself or to, I don't know, please my friends in Madrid, <laughs> my musician friends. And now it's just on the internet. I'd love it to be used for, I don't know, a film or something. I think I think some of the songs I did were can be quite cinematic in a way. That would be nice. But 
I don't know. I think I made a decision at some point that I wasn't really trying to make money from it. So it's just, it's just um, personal, just personal pride, if you like, having created it and just being able to, I don't really listen back to it particularly because <laughs> it just seems a bit weird because there's so much other music to listen to. But now and again, you know, I might listen to one of the songs and think, oh, that was good, you know, we did that. Yeah, in terms of copyrights and stuff, I mean, I think I think this is one way where the digital world has really amped all that up. I mean, it's a gift. You know, the, the internet and the whole culture is a gift to copywriters and stuff. <laughs> copywriters in the sense of people who look after patents and copyrights. Right, the people that own the rights, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to, I didn't mean copywriters and advertising, it's a different thing. But... Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, it's it's been a strange thing. I mean, you go from the, I can't remember what joke you used in the Glass Onion psycho second psychology podcast that I was listening to the other day, but you, you know, go, you go from, oh, this thing showed up on the back of an, of a truck from the internet cool oh, yeah the back of an internet lorry <laughs> yeah there you go there you go thank you yeah yeah you, you know you go from that culture to suddenly you know any any time you want to use anything you go oh god am i gonna get flagged for this or mm. yeah it's it's a strange world to be living in for oh, getting stranger <laughs> You wanted to talk about some lyrics of John Lennon that, that reflect that, didn't you? Uh, I think I did. I, I remember before we hit record, I was listening to Milk and Honey. Yeah. Or at least to the, the John Lennon sections of it. Mm. You know, uh, let's see, I still have Spotify open. So what did I listen to? I listened to Borrowed Time, I Don't Want to Face It, and... Nobody told me, wasn't it? Nobody told me, yeah. Title of the episode, I should remember that. (laughs) Or basis of the title of the episode, please don't sue me, Yoko. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, just this this notion of... It must be uh, somewhat of a middle age thing. That's the only way I can conceptualize it. Mm. You know, you start out your life thinking the world's going to be one way mm. and you, you know, you go through life experience and you know, you, you go from worrying about getting that attractive person to suddenly worrying about, Oh, what's my legacy going to be? Or, or you know, mm. what just the, the change in priorities. I don't remember Erickson's stages off the top of my head, but hopefully you know where I'm going with that. Mm. And it's just an, an interesting shift because it's it's not only embracing at a certain point the nature of who you are because you've come far enough in life to realize that there's only so much you can change, but also looking at the world around you and then going, yeah, I don't want to face that. Mm. <laughs> I want I do want to save humanity, but truly, it's people I cannot stand. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, such an incredible line. Oh my god! I when I yeah. yeah when I when I re-listened to that recently, I think it was sometime after our last interview. Mm. I I was just I was listening to that. And I was I sit there, it stopped, gave myself a moment. It's like, okay, John, 
I realized you were most likely writing that in reference to yourself. Mm. But God, that stung. (laughs) Yeah. So the line for people that don't know, something like you say you want to save humanity, but it's people that you just can't stand. Yeah. it's It's interesting actually thinking about that. Again, he wouldn't have meant that, but if you think about, um, I don't know, for example, SJWs or, or people that maybe, I remember I had an American friend and she said, uh, everyone, everyone in my area is a liberal. They've got quite rich liberals. And this is just you know one subsection of society. And she said, they believe in all the liberal causes, but they don't live any of them in their everyday life. Which yeah. is really, which is really fascinating. You must have, we must have all met people like that. They kind of project a general sense of inclusion in the world, and then they don't practice it. I mean, George Carlin, you'll know this, used to talk about NIMBY, not in my backyard. Yep. So people, people saying, oh, we, you know, we need to to help immigrants. We need to help minorities, but not in my backyard. As long as there's not any real people, real minorities anywhere near me. Um, so that, that I think his lyrics, I don't think he meant that, but I think his lyrics are just so open. When you come up with a killer line, Bob Dylan did this a lot, still oh, does. Yeah, I did. Where, where you know, it, it's just open to interpretation, but it, it kind of works very neatly. So, um, yeah, so he's expressing that idea that he wants the best for the world, but then perhaps he has trouble with personal relationships, which is really, really interesting. And then nobody told me, again, you know, nobody told me there'd be days like these. Most peculiar, Mama, you know. Yeah. Think about, I'm sure the world, I'm sure at any point in the world, people were probably saying, wow, things are changing really quickly, the modern age. You know, um, I've always been interested in the Titanic story. Because I think that's a really interesting societal story. And in fact, I'm going to put something on uh, Life and Life Only very soon about that. Oh, I'm looking and, forward to that. I was I was obsessed with the Titanic around third and fourth grade myself. It's such a multifaceted story. But uh, what I was going to say was when it was the 100-year anniversary, which is 2012, uh, someone bought me, uh, you could buy some of the original newspapers. And uh, it was fascinating to see a newspaper from 1912. First of all, the writing was very, very poetic perhaps more than now. But also it was interesting, there was loads of stuff, references to the fast pace in the modern world. So it could be that any point in history, people are saying, God, blimey, technology's taking over, the world's going mad and all that. But having said that, I'm not sure it could be any more crazy and moving faster than it is at the moment, because obviously a lot of that's to do with the quote-unquote global world, the global village. Right. Where, you know, you and I, for example, have access to do to to do this and while, while i'm asleep you're awake preparing it and while you're asleep i'm i'm preparing a podcast or whatever i'm doing so yeah, it's now yeah. all 24 hours and it, it, i can't imagine the world could be any madder than it is now but perhaps it was obviously you know 20th century was we had two world wars that was pretty crazy obviously yeah, yeah. The, the 20th century was insane and it's yeah of course yeah I I wanted to follow up on something just briefly that we just briefly touched upon in the first conversation. Yep. You mentioned FDR and I didn't follow up on it and I, <laughs> I I feel the need. <laughs> so FDR is so interesting, especially that 
that specifically that that mention you made of of him saying that a president isn't so much elected as chosen and mm. I think that's very true if you look at the primary process and it's very interesting to me that 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 mirrors the parliamentary process in a weird way like please correct me if I'm wrong but I, I was I was in the UK for the 2010 election, which I think Cameron and the coalition government, Cameron and somebody else, um, I, don't, I don't remember. Yeah, Cameron and, Cameron and Clegg, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. Mm. Um, so I was there at that time, and I'm looking at it and I'm going, so you don't directly elect your leader? It's just whatever party has the majority? Well, that's no better than what we have. Interesting. <laughs> It's, it's, it's just so interesting that, uh, you know, you, you don't have as much choice as you think you, you do, I guess. And mm. a lot of a lot of people will praise FDR up and down. There's there's certainly a lot to praise. Mm. But it's interesting to me how much gets gets missed. I mean, he was the one that signed Japanese internment, for instance. Mm. And he ran for a fourth term when he knew full well he was not in good health and he didn't bother to tell Truman anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just so interesting. But yeah, I mean, Truman gets blamed uh, for the the, um, the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs. But again, how do we know? Because he came in, I think he came in in 45, didn't he? Yes, that sounds didn't right. He? And that was the same year, so... He essentially, for people that think, you know, the nuclear bombs were, atomic bombs were a terrible idea, um, he gets blamed for that, but he had just come in. And, uh, I mean, who the hell knows you know, what goes on behind the scenes? Jeez. I mean, someone like Jimmy Carter, who uh, some would consider one of the best presidents or seemed to be kind of a, he was a peanut farmer, wasn't he? He seemed to be a kind of... A Christian <laughs> peanut farmer from Georgia. <laughs> Yeah, just to kind of, he was the, and yeah, again, going by the image, he was uh, um, the typical kind of quiet, softly spoken Southern guy who, you know, wanted peace and everything. But, you know, he actually said something, I uh, can't remember the quote, but about the Vietnam War, which is a war I've studied a lot. Something about, oh, I can't remember the quote, unfortunately, but it was something like there was blame on both sides or giving the idea that what they had done to us was the same as what we'd done to them. That was the essence of the quote, which is, is just incredible. And then, of course, his... Oh, would it be Foreign Secretary? I can't remember. Zbigniew uh, um, Brzezinski um, was instrumental in arming the uh, Mujahideen who became uh, Al-Qaeda. Right. Because the Russians were in Afghanistan. So... And equally, you know, Nick, Nixon was quite progressive in some ways. Yeah, I think the EPA was on his watch. Now, they have that expression, you know, on my watch, or on his watch. So the, the atomic bombs were literally on, officially on Truman's watch. But how do you know what had come before? I mean, God, who the hell knows? And with the parliamentary process, yeah, I think it's become a fairly modern phenomenon that if a party in England has something close to a majority, they can kind of organise a coalition as Theresa May's government did with a very small party in Northern Ireland. 
just to kind of push them over the line. So it's become a kind of a some weird kind of a numbers game where you're like, well, I've almost got a majority. Let's contact this party and say, oh, can we just pool our resources? We don't seem we've we've reached a point where it's very difficult to, to get a majority now. And I feel like that maybe because the public have kind of see that both parties are pretty similar. I mean, the Tories are really ramping up certain things which are very uh, synonymous with Conservatives. But in general, we've been stuck in the centre. So it's just centre left and centre right for a long time. Pretty much the same thing over here. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of variety, and mm. it's it's funny. I went at the at the time, I went over to the UK thinking, oh, parliamentary system's got to be better. You've mm-hmm. got uh, more than two parties. You've got all this and st- all this and that. And I'm sitting over there watching the BBC in Rochdale, I think it was, and. I'm just watching and I'm like, oh, wait, this is just more U.S. <laughs> yeah. And Canada was the same experience and um, Australia, same experience. It's just like, oh, my God, it's 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 all over. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I, think, I think a lot of it's because it's, uh, it's essentially they're all in NATO. I always think of the, the Western powers as um, NATO, basically. And I think perhaps there's a uniformity now. Again, we don't know, but it seems like there's a real uniformity between all the policies and the way things work in those countries. Obviously, with some differences, but yeah, yeah, subtle differences. But I, but I, but I think you're right. I think uh, you know the way the end of the World War II happened. Obviously, Russia gets east and West gets west, and it's Mm. Even though the wall is not there anymore, it's not a lot's changed. So, well, you know, I have a couple of Russian students, and oh, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, but all I was going to say, and it's another—it's so funny, isn't it? We can talk for an hour and just scratch the very just surface. barely scratch the surface. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. What they were going to say was that um, I think again, the sort of uh, the idea is that everything was great in Russia in the 90s once the wall had come down. And they will tell you that is absolutely not the case because um, I don't know enough about this to, to comment too much, but essentially a lot of people will say that Russia was kind of sold off to the oligarchs, uh, one of whom was Roman Abramovich, who took over Chelsea, um, and that Yeltsin, Yeltsin was basically a drunk, and this is what my students say as well, and that he was in, in the hands of the Americans, and they kind of persuaded him to bring in all these neoliberal policies and stuff. And, um, but yeah, the, the very simplistic idea is that everything was great once the wall came down. But it's scary if you if you investigate history too much and you find things are not quite the exact opposite, but they're so different. Nothing, yeah, nothing simple. I think that's that's the easiest way to put it. And yeah. since, you, since you brought up Vietnam, and since we were talking about 60s last time, Mm. I wanted to see, particularly kind of with the, what we would term the British invasion, Beatles, Rolling Stones, Mm. The Who, all that, in mind, what are your thoughts on Kennedy and all that? 
Ooh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, again, again, before I knew any better, you know, as John Lennon said, nobody told me. <laughs> I, think, I, I think you could also use nobody told me in the sense that my parents didn't tell me what the world was actually like because they didn't know and their parents didn't tell them. So I like the nobody told me idea, you know, it just as a general thing. Um, yeah, everybody will say Kennedy was a great man and a great president. But if you actually drill down, you probably find they don't actually know anything about his policies or what he was into. Because I've been thinking about this a lot. And this sounds incredibly cynical of me. But if you really drill down, it's the, the glamour of him. And he was a good looking fella. And he had a, a very attractive wife. They were a very attractive couple. It's very difficult to get past that. And of course, the horrible manner of his death and the fact that he was taken away. But if you actually drill down into his policies, I think you'll find he was a lot more aggressive on Vietnam than we think. And Ch Chomsky talks about this quite a lot. He said that Kennedy actually invaded South Vietnam in 1963, which I couldn't quite verify. Um, but yeah, I think the idea was much more of a hawk than we think. But then there's another school of thought that said that perhaps he was having a change of heart in the six months before he died, and perhaps that was why he was killed, who knows? But uh, I think he's a very good example of how the image uh, takes over. And um, if you really drill down, you'll find there's not as much substance behind it as you think. But some may disagree, you know? What do you think about Kennedy? I would tend to uh, agree with sort of the lines that you just went down. I... I I took a it was an online class so I didn't unfortunately get much out of it but I took a class class called the Vietnam era oh. in college and I can't remember for the life of me what books they assigned us but the books were pretty much detailing how Kennedy started escalating in Vietnam he, yeah. he was the one that did it. <laughs> right, right. It wasn't, you know, and so, I mean, LBJ gets all the blame, and I, in some ways, I feel sorry for LBJ, but in other ways, it's like, you know what? No. <laughs> right, Absolutely right. not. And I, and I think that's that's the crazy thing. You, I mean, you, you look at, what was that, November of 64, right? What's that? Which one? Um, Kennedy, Kennedy and then the, the Beatles shortly came to the U.S. shortly thereafter. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Kennedy was November 63, and then, yeah, the Beatles came in February 64, yeah. That's right. That's right. I got one year yeah. off. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but either way, just the, the timing of that is so amazing because mm. obviously I, did, I didn't live through the loss of Kennedy, but having lived through my era, I can imagine how desperate the people of the U.S. must have been for something, anything positive and rejoiceful. Yeah. And here comes the Beatles, and I want to hold your hand on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Well, circling back, we talked about 9-11. There you go. You lived through that, so... Yeah. That even bigger. That was probably comparable or even bigger, obviously, with the more loss of life, but... Yeah, you don't. You, we none of us realize at the time, but there. I think I believe there are forces in the world, and some would say this is very paranoid, 
whose immediate thought is to capitalize on whatever is happening. And in fact, just to give you a little example, uh, there's a great documentary called The Corporation, which is actually free, I think, online. I really would highly recommend you watch that because it's, it's really fantastic. And there's a trader who talks about, as soon as he heard that, that the towers have been hit, he, he, said, he said, on one, one hand, I was thinking, you know, that, that's terrible. So a lot of people must have died. On the other hand, I'm thinking, what would happen to the stock price? Because he's a trader. Um, yeah, and it sounds... Yeah, it sort of sounds like, oh, he must be evil or something, but he, he's not. It, it's um, That's the business he's in. And I think perhaps if people thought of the government of the world more as a business, things might things might seem a bit clearer, perhaps. When Kennedy died or 9-11, basically there are forces in the world that are immediately thinking, how can we capitalise on that? And there's so much evidence for that. It's very difficult to dispute. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... Carlin said it better than I ever could. I'm going to adapt it for our global stage. <laughs> it's called the dream of prosperity because you have to be asleep to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can be prosperous, but it's, um, I think, uh, I think if you, if you, uh, I think if you're too interested in the truth, perhaps it kind of, that's where you get in trouble. I've just been talking about this, actually. I have a little meetup group here where I live. We were talking about that, about the red pill and the blue pill. So we talked about The Matrix last week. Oh, week. right. I haven't seen those movies in forever. I'm not sure if I'm excited yeah. about the new one or not. Yeah, I think you can prosper in this world if you take the blue pill. But then would you be able to live with yourself if you're a kind of a person that almost needs the red pill? <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> swallow so much of your um i don't know integrity yeah yeah it, it goes back to <laughs> we're, we're starting to circle so i, I think oh, we always do yeah we never we go from kennedy to red pills yeah very quickly <laughs> yeah I, I i think it's safe to say i i choose to take the red pill mm. and uh i know that may have consequences mm. I'm a little tired of being worried about the consequences. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, just go back to Kennedy just for two seconds. Uh, go I for it. There are quite possible, quite possibly good things that he did. Um, he fired Alan Dulles. There's a quote about splintering the CIA into thousands of pieces or something like that. He also vetoed Operation Northwoods, which is a very interesting one when you talk about conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, that's one that you can, you can tell people about Operation Northwoods. Uh, I just, th just think that the image overrides everything. And you said, like, we like it simple. Of course, you know, imagine a news broadcast where they broke everything down. You know, most people wouldn't be able to take it, I don't think. You know, we, we do like, and I'm the same. A lot of the time, I like sound bites. You know, because they're easy and you get the general idea of what's going on. But the thing you have to do, I think, is, is then investigate a bit further. You know? Yeah. A lot of people just stop at the sound bites and that's it. And they say, oh, well, I'm informed about the world. That's fine. Everything's okay. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like in your song. I mean, you got to do more than believe what you read on the. <laughs> <laughs> Don't yeah. believe, you know, don't believe us any more than you would believe anyone else to your own research. Yeah, yeah. And then it's sort of ironically, I'm 
I'm also saying believe what you read and believe what you see as if that's kind of what the, the news is telling you. Don't worry, we've got all the answers. You can there's, believe it. There's, I, I absolutely love your music because there's, I, I think any, any good artist, you, yourself, John, any, anybody, the, the complexity in putting together a concise sequence of, you know, chords, melody, key changes. I love key changes myself as a mm. aspiring composer. That's one of my favorite little tricks. But mm. just the ability to do that and the ability, especially with a song and with really powerful lyrics that, that, that are intentionally vague, a la mm. Strawberry Fields or something similar, you, you know, maybe, maybe when you're sitting down and writing it, I know when I'm sitting down and writing lyrics, I'm not intentionally thinking, oh, this can be interpreted 25 different ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm intentionally contradicting myself in 25 different places. It's usually not that. It's usually, oh, I have this idea. Oh, wait, I changed my mind and it rhymes. <laughs> but yeah. but there's so much power in just the accidental flow of it, the creative process and I mean, for me, creativity is is absolutely a coping mechanism for pain. But mm. there's, and I think it was, I suspect it was John, for John as well. But John. there's there's so much beauty that you can you can get out of it. And I, I guess I guess the last point I want to visit is something like, "Hey, you got to hide your love. Uh, you've got to hide your love away." It's so interesting to me, and other. Era, songs of the help era because it's mm. if you listen to the lyrics you know especially help specifically you list out the lyrics and you look at them John's crying for help <laughs> mm. but he's doing so in an up-tempo rocky song mm. and creatively that is something that I'm so envious of because it's like Okay, you know, it wasn't wasn't great that he couldn't ask for help directly. But he was able to turn a desperate plea for help into a rock song. That's a pretty damn cool talent. <laughs> yeah. I think he would say that the reason it was fast was probably because of the others, perhaps, George Martin and Paul or whoever. Because um, there's actually a piano demo he did, which is much more, When I was younger, so much younger... So, you know, like years later, he, he was very bitter about certain things. Oh, yes. But interestingly, it, it works in his favour because if you listen to the Hollywood Bowl version of Help with John's kind of unfiltered voice, it's really quite amazing. Have a listen to that. I'm sure you can find it. Is that, the, is, is that the one on the anthology too? Uh, no, I don't think so. There's, no, I think that might be Blackpool Night Out, which isn't such a powerful one, but... Uh, the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, listen to help from there. There's a kind of breathlessness about it. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, you mentioned who you got to hide your love away. You were talking about happy accidents. Of course, the line feeling two foot small was an accident. Oh, yes, I remember that story, yes. Yeah, it's supposed to be feeling two foot tall. <laughs> yeah. Feeling two foot small. And I think, I think there's a skill in recognising accidents. Uh, I think... And with creativity, I think the creative space is the important thing. You know, a lot of people talk about, um, uh, you know, going out for a walk, 
with your creative self. It was like a date. It's even be it's even been uh, described as an artist date or something. You know, yeah. uh, taking your artist out for a date, but being in that creative space where you kind of um, turn off turn off some of the filters or remove some of the filters. Yeah, of, of a conscious mind, that kind of mind that we have to use to get through life, basically. Yeah, yeah, the 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 social mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I um, it's funny. You saying that flashback to a just brief story I had about my demo experience. Yeah. When I when I was a kid, I started you know lyric writing, songwriting pretty early. Came up with this just this little snippet. Uh, trying to remember the words as I was walking down the street a very good friend I happened to meet it was the rainbow 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 he said he was very 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 sad I asked him why 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 and then that was all I had yeah and I I can't remember when I wrote it or why I wrote it or whatever but um, some years later I I had I either had my basement apartment in Seattle or I was living in Everett which is you know 45 minutes away, whatever. Mm. So it was in the middle, middle of the night. I'm walking through free, Freeway Park or somewhere similar, kind of a sketchy neighborhood near downtown. And it's, you know, rainy, dark, feeling very cold, very bitter. And, and that was the perfect feeling to have because I came up with such... I, I can't remember the lyrics off the top of my head, but I came up with such a perfect response for that mm. little bit that had been sitting in my head for God knows how many years. And it's, it's, it's amazing. You're right. Like if you just open yourself up and mm. say, okay, I'm in my creative space right now. I'm going to do whatever my creative mind feels like doing. And I'm going to worry about editing there or making it sound right later. As I was walking down the street, a very good friend, I happened to meet. It was the rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. He said he was very, very sad. And I asked him why, why, why. And this is what he said to me. I am so damn sad. I am so damn mad. The world is so damn bad No one loves anymore It's not what the world is for The world is for me alone And since you're not me, you see I must say fuck you it's all the world can do. You really close your mind, relax, and float downstream. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, you know you can always edit it later. That's the thing. I think, actually, a very good... Um, you're, I'm sure you've heard of John Cleese, you know, of um, Monty Python. Oh, fame. of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he did a talk about creativity. Again, see if you can find it on YouTube. I think it might still be there. And it's a very funny talk, right? There's loads of humor in it, but he makes some serious points. And one of them is, is kind of to do with the child mind and the adult mind. 
And essentially what he says is when you're in the creative process, in the creative space, you need to turn on the child mind and get, get rid of the adult for a while. Um, so you're giving yourself a license to come up with anything. Now, like a child does, you know, a child doesn't filter. Yeah. You know, animals, my, my cat, not my cat, my cat that my parents have. Uh, it doesn't have any filter, you know, it doesn't uh, filter its behavior at all. <laughs> but then you, um, then when you've done that, then you kind of turn on the adult mind and you say you do a more of a kind of uh, cold isn't the word, but business-like sort of editing about it. If you want to do that, of course, if you want to create a totally abstract piece of art, then you don't even need the adult mind. You just go for it. But yep. if I think last time we talked about Frank Zappa, I always, always give always give Zappa as an example of someone who appears to have no rules at all in their life. But actually, if you know something about Zappa, he also had a kind of quite cold, hard businessman side of him, which a lot of it was to do with free speech and a lot of gaining control of his music, as as Prince used, did uh, years after that as well. But it's interesting, you think of like the, the most radical artist you can think of, and Zappa would be one of those. Uh, they still had the other side, which did like put things, you know, he put the finishing touches to his songs and put together the track listing for his album. So there's nothing wrong with being a little bit business-like about the way you go about your creativity. But the important thing is in the act itself, I think you've got to, you've got to be a child almost, you know, turn off the filters. I, th I think that's a, that's a great spot. That's John Cleese though, not me. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a great, great spot of wisdom. And uh, yeah, I, I just want to say, I appreciate, I don't always get it because, you know, being from the U.S. and just slightly, you know, it may not only be a 3,000-mile ocean or so, but slightly mm -hmm. slightly different culture. Yeah. And uh, I don't always get British humor, but I genuinely appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> always. Douglas Adams especially. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like a good idea, of course. Yeah. I, I, th I think... Uh, I think maybe may, may a more comforting me, way for me to flare future episodes is just to say, okay, maybe the mice are just running things and we got to just wait for the Wolgons to show up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're a hyperspace really. bypass. Yeah. I suppose SNL is something similar to British Shima, I guess, to some extent. It's, um, yeah, I, I mean... Seems to me, just you know, outsider's observer's perspective, but it's often, often British humor seems to be based on subtleties and satire, subtleties in in tone, which, as an autistic person, I don't always get, but mm. sarcasm I can definitely pick up on, and you know, like Fry and Laurie. Um, the list goes on and on. It's just, hmm. I'm I'm less of an anglophile now than I was before, but I, I'm still definitely an anglophile. <laughs> yeah, there is a difference, of course, between a sort of straight sarcasm, which generally would be, you know, in Monty Python or something like that. It would be it would be something along the lines of, uh, "We praise our glorious queen" or something like that. Where <laughs> right. In the, right. In the voice, you just know that they mean the opposite. Yep. And they're sending up the idea. But then, you know, satire probably cuts a little bit deeper, perhaps. But I think there's a clear through line between um, 
uh, Monty Python. Well, going back to things like uh, even a Hard Day's Night and you know the Richard Lester angle. Oh yeah, definitely. And, definitely. And then through Monty Python, and then of course Eric Idle was involved with Saturday Night Live. So there's a wonderful through line that goes through that comedy, which um, probably starts in the early '60s in England, or even in the '50s with the Goons. Although I've never really found them. Something interesting. Interesting about Carlin. We were talking about kind of the the playing the game sort of thing mm. and it wasn't until after our conversation that i remembered oh yeah carlin started out very conservative very very conservative in his comedy where relative to where he ended up with class clown and then of course eventually life was worth losing and everything else yeah it's it's you know so you like you watch the old clips from the tonight show and I, I wouldn't even be the tonight show it would be whatever was before that but it was absolutely amazing like it was controversial extremely controversial for him to bring out hippie dippy weatherman <laughs> right right yeah so insane just just and I, I guess that's probably the biggest takeaway for me is recognizing that there are moments in time and history as as human history goes up upon what seems to be a continuous loop <laughs> um where you're where you have a good deal of creative latitude and you and, and you can say more and then there's more oppressive times and mm. well yeah i mean uh, again so i guess a tangent we won't go on now but we could easily talk about how the comedy is so sanitized now as well we could we could yeah. let's well, let's let's hopefully save that for another time i get the feeling that, that you've got stuff to do and i've eventually got to sleep myself so yeah you need to eventually sleep but we can enjoy um unfortunately george carlin um when he was on the mike douglas show which was the week that john and yoko that wonderful oh, yeah, that's surreal right. week 1972 i'm sure they talked backstage about the world because i think I think Carlin uh, had uh, some sort of um, epiphany, let's say. I think partly through LSD, actually. And I think that happened years before his act actually changed. So I think he was compartmentalizing for a while. Kind yeah. of knew how the world was. But, so I'm sure him and John, um, even if not on camera, I'm sure behind the scenes they talked about some good stuff. But we can revel in it, you know, check out some Dick Cavett clips. You know, they're coming up pretty much every day now on our favorite uh, video channel. So you can revel in how uh, how the talk show seemed more open in those days as well, don't I? Oh yeah, the talk show. Oh god, we could go on so many tangents, Anthony. I'm <laughs> yeah. I I really enjoy talking to you. I really enjoy your content and your music. And based on your most recent Glass Onion, it 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 sounds like you're you're going to have to make some changes. And I I just want to mm. say I I. I hope you're able to keep the content available to people because it's great content, even if it if it you know needs to be a please donate five dollars for access yeah. or something like that. I I I just want to thank you so much for for your hard work. It entertains me, and I'm sure it entertains others. So thank you. You're very welcome. You're welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, if I could just quickly plug my shows for two seconds. <laughs> oh, go for it, please. Yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon, uh, Life and Life Only, and Film Gold. And they're available in all the usual places. 
Um, Twitter seems to be quite a good place to connect with these. So Twitter at Onion Lennon, capital O, capital L, and then at Life Only 75 and at Film Gold 75. That's capital F, capital G. And there's a Facebook page with all the usual stuff. All the places where you get your favorite podcasts. And look at this. Just before we go, I just opened up Twitter and there's a wonderful news headline. Prince Philip's will to remain sealed for 90 years. <laughs> I saw that earlier. and I'm, what, a, I'm, what a perfect uh, coda to our conversation. Like, what a completely <laughs> random piece of information. So we have to wait. We have to stay alive. We have to stay alive until I'm 136 to find out what's in Prince Philip's will. <laughs> Good grief. I just love how random that is. Brilliant. I, I'm going to go watch Eddie Izzard because... Oh, Eddie Izzard. Yeah. She, she, she's awesome and uh, dressed to kill and all that. So I'm going to go do that and uh, I'm going to thank you again so much, You're Anthony. Welcome. Keep going with your show as well. Oh, thank you. Most people are not.
fundamentally nice Believe in left and right Believe it's wrong to Thank you so much, Anthony. I really appreciate both that song and your time and your insight and your incredible generosity. 
That song in particular is just the right kind of punch in the gut. I hope all those listening enjoyed it as much as I did. In a world where life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, we all desperately need the right people. Even if it's people that we just can't stand, and nobody told us we'd be living in hellhole California with a very depressed rainbow. Please, 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 please check out Anthony's work at anthonyretuno.com. I will, of course, have his many links at knickknackpod.net. That's N-I-C-N-A-C-P-O-D.net. If you'd like to support my work in the form of feedback or donations, please head to knickknackpod.net. Again, N-I-C-N-A-C-P-O-D.net. Reviews in the podcast app help as well. The music long list today is Raindrop Rhapsody by Josh Elkenberry, Mr. Rainbow No Love by Knickknack Marsh, The Fool's God by Anthony Rotuno, and of course, Catch Me If You Can by Attica Attica. If you enjoyed this music, please, please, please support these independent artists by buying their work or making donations. I thank all of them for allowing their music to be used in this production, including myself. I will, of course, again, have all the links in the show notes at knickknackpod.net. This podcast would be nothing, and I mean nothing, without the great musical work of others, and occasionally myself. Which is why I say poo-poo to the DMCA, and remind you that the Knickknack Podcast and FS Ride Along series is copyright 2006 through 2021 by Knickknack Marsh and is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Consider the red pill if it isn't naturally occurring in your life experience. And may you find the safety and support you need to empower you and meet your needs. So catch me if you can. I'm running hard without a gun before I'm on the blocks, my hat pulled down.